Well, we're continuing in our study of Nehemiah, and, you know, I think sometimes Nehemiah wants to, at some point, just say, you know, what's next? You know, every time, you know, they overcome something, something else comes along. Um, you know, the, you know. First of all, he's you know he's the cupbearer to the king, and he hears the news of what's going on, you know, back in his homeland, and so he takes risk. He goes there. He you know finds the exiles who are you know kind of happy, just not doing what they're supposed to do, and um, and then he you know he kind of gets a plan together. Um, gets motivated, organizes the people, inspires them, and they, they go to work. So he's already done something that's really hard to do. I mean, it's really hard to go to a group of people who've been in an area for a long time and, and haven't been doing what they needed to be doing. That's, that's not, you know, easy to do. And we're not talking about just hitting a dry spell or hitting a plateau for a a year or two. We're talking about a century. They've become very entrenched in how they're they're living and what they're doing and just kind of accepting it. And so Nehemiah does an incredible thing to get all this going. But then, you know, he gets this opposition from these enemies And as we talked about last week, it wasn't just people from the outside, it was also doubt from people that were supposed to be part of the the community. But somehow he's able to overcome all that, you know, through his, his faithfulness, through his hard work, through his planning, his organization, again, his charisma as a leader. He does all of that, and it seems like, you know, they're gonna get there. And then we come to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, they're going to be confronted with this, this, this thing that threatens any community. I don't care if it's a big or small community. It's a threat to it all, to it all but it's often done as a way to try to make the community stronger. And, and we all don't like this. If, if someone were to ask you, are you for this, nobody would admit it, and very few people would be lying if they said, no, I'm against this. Because I don't know anybody that's like pro-oppression. I don't know anybody that's you know, pro-injustice. I don't know anybody that says, you know what, we should be working to make our society as oppressive as possible or as unjust as possible. Again, there's always weird people that think this. But most of us don't think this, and if we did, we wouldn't admit it. People hate oppression. They hate injustice. But the question is, what are we willing to do with it? What are we willing to do about it? And this is what he's going to face, because people aren't necessarily willing to to sacrifice you know, they're, they're willing to complain about it. They're willing to point it out, but not sacrifice. And by the way, by sacrifice, I don't mean an easy sacrifice. 
I don't mean a short sacrifice, like, oh, I'm going to go protest, or oh, I'm going to write a, write a letter to my senator. No, that's not a sacrifice. Because real lasting change, real lasting change, societal change, it takes a long time. It doesn't happen overnight. You don't change the very fabric or the ethos of a culture like in a second. And in fact, whenever people have tried to do that in history, it doesn't turn out well. It turns out rather poorly. There's this person you may have heard of. His name's Oliver Cromwell, and we have a kind of an image of him, I think, somewhere on our slides. Um, Oliver Cromwell was a leader in, in Great Britain at the time, probably known as England, in the 1600s. And, and, and he, over time, he, he wants to reform his society. And he's leader of the group that's called the Puritans. And eventually they go to war and they overthrow the royalists. They have the king executed. And he becomes the leader. This is over a period of 20 to 30 years, Oliver Cromwell dies. All of his reforms are gone. Devoted most of his life, his adult life, 20 to 30 years trying to, to change a society. But as soon as he died, it went right back to what it was before, for better or worse. Just went right back. And, and I talk about Oliver Cromwell because for some of us, we think like, you know, I tried. I, I, I really cared about something for like three months and then it didn't do any good. So, you know, uh, I'm going to go care about something else. If we don't get some kind of result right away, it, it bugs us. And I'm not just talking about us here at the church. I'm talking about, you know, us in general as humanity, we don't understand the time and the commitment that it takes. And so even a guy like Oliver Cromwell who wanted to transform his society, 20, 30 years wasn't enough. Not enough. And so, so much of what we do, it's, you know, we, we're willing to sacrifice as long as it's fast. I'm willing to care as long as I can, I don't, you know, it doesn't mess with my vacation plans. You know, I'm willing to care as long as I'm home, you know, in time, you know, to watch my favorite shows. I'm willing to care, um, you know, as long as I can actually see all the results. Even if I answer and say, I'll, I'll go give my whole life. We still want to give our whole lives, but we want to see the change taking place. And it's hard. It's hard because even as Christians, we don't, we don't fully understand this. We don't understand that, that, that it's not quick. It's not fast. What Jesus came to do is he came to save the world. He didn't, it's not like, oh, okay, then 
why not 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross and he resurrected? Why wasn't the world just instantly changed? It takes time. We have to guard against, you know, uh, like impatience. We have to guard against trying for the quick victory. It takes time. It takes every day, every moment. That's the kind of sacrifice it takes. See, Jesus' answer, it's not quick. It's not easy. The world has quick, you know, quick, sometimes easy, sometimes hard solutions to its problems that will never really hold because the fundamental problem hasn't been dealt with. Jesus' answer, it will take his followers all of his followers, not just his followers today, but his followers that go into the past and his followers that go into the future. It will take all of us dedicating our lives to live and to proclaim his gospel in every situation. We may not get to see you know, the, the, the improvements. We may not get to see the, the change, but we're called to be faithful it's not a settling. It's not a, I'll do my part when, I, you know, when the call is given. No, the call's been given. The call's been given. Jesus has said, my kingdom is here. You, my followers, you're part of my kingdom. Be the kingdom. And when you're the kingdom, the world will see it. And the world will change. Not because we're great examples, but because they'll realize that all of the things that they say they want and they hope for, they're only going to be found through faith in Jesus Christ and his people coming together and living, living out in the spirit who we've been called to be and saved to be takes time. Well, here's Nehemiah, and they're rebuilding the wall. He's taking care of the external enemies, at least temporarily, but now there's this new problem. And those of you who are with us on Wednesday night, we talked about this, but let's look at this in verse uh, 1. It says, now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the, their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So here in this, this great moment, I mean, you know, the, the people of God are on the very, very brink of, of 
the walled city being completed, reestablishing themselves as a people. They're right there. And oppression occurs. This is why we always have to be on guard for this. Because oppression can occur anytime, any place. Anytime, any place. On, on the brink of this incredible miracle of the city of Jerusalem once again being in the hands of the people of God. The temple has been restored. The walls are rebuilt. They're, they can soon repopulate. It can become the center of that area. This great work of God. And right in the middle of it, oppression. Well, what does this oppression look like? Well, when we take a closer look, it even is worse than we think. Because what's happening, at least in part and perhaps in whole, is that the people who are having to go into debt, the people who are having to give up their land and give up you know, their children or their children have to go and work for somebody else to pay off the debt, they are the people that were building the wall. Think about that. They're building the wall. They're, they're the faithful. They're doing God's work. And the ones who weren't faithful are profiting off of them. Keep in mind, Nehemiah is not just rebuilding a wall. He's rebuilding a nation. This tells us there is a serious problem with this nation. Some reason the, these others couldn't see, like, you know what? Maybe we can't go build the wall. Maybe we're even a little bit afraid of, you know, the enemies. But we see God's faithful doing it. And now, you know what? This is how we can help. They didn't have time to plant because they were building a wall. We're going to take care of them. Even if they need to borrow something, it's okay. We're going to let them borrow it. But no, not even that. Why? Well, I can only think of a couple of reasons. One is they just didn't think about it. One is, is that they had become so entrenched in their lives in the way, you know, this is just good business. They're not thinking about ethical implications. They're not thinking about anything beyond just, this is what we always do. You know, and if that's what we always do, there's no reason to change it. It's not wrong, they might think. It's just good business. Second reason is they actually did understand. And they did what good business people do. They look at a situation, how do I take advantage of it? They did. But we give them somewhat of the benefit of the, of the doubt, and we're going to read about that in a second, that perhaps... They didn't really understand the situation they were in. 
Now, why didn't they understand it? I don't know. It seems like Nehemiah has been pretty clear. It seems like it's been communicated well in the first few chapters of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is not the first person to come along and say this. These people aren't really blind. But they couldn't either see beyond their own world, their own comfort, their own wealth, or they're just not willing to sacrifice. They might have even sat back and thought like, that's a pretty nice wall. You know, I don't want to admit to you, I didn't think they could build that wall, but it's really nice. You know, yay, Nehemiah, we're pro-wall. But they're not going to do anything. They're just going to sit there and, and cheer. I don't want to offend anyone, but I think we do have a role as Christians to encourage one another, but I don't think there's a spiritual gift of being a cheerleader. So if I've offended cheerleaders, I'm sorry. Yes, we do encourage one another, we do cheer one another on, but it's because we're also out there in the race. The picture isn't that we're on the sidelines. You know, Hebrews talks about that, but that's people who've died. So if you've died, you get to cheer, but pretty sure all of you are still alive. But it's kind of like what happens sometimes in races, you know, running races, where, you know, even the competitors, you know, they all know, you know, they all want to win, they all want to do their best, but at the same time, they also all know that they're sharing in this corporate misery, <laughs> and, they, and they encourage one another because they know everybody's going through the same thing. But they're running the race. Oppression can occur anytime, any place, intentional or not. You, you can't use the excuse as, as Christians of, I didn't know. I was just, just doing what I do. I didn't know. And sometimes, like, in the, in the church, this happens because we just, for some reason, aren't engaged enough to know what happens, what has to take place, who's doing what, to make everything happen. I sometimes have a sermon that some of you have, I've alluded to, it's the Magic Bunny sermon. And it's the, the belief that a lot of church people have that magic bunnies take care of everything during the week. So when they come on Sunday morning, the magic bunnies turned on the lights. The magic bunnies made sure everything was unlocked. The magic bunnies paid all the bills. Magic bunnies, you know, taught the classes. And there's all these magic bunnies running around. And I always have to deliver the disappointing news during this sermon. There are no magic bunnies. We are the church. We bring together our gifts, our abilities, our time, 
our talent, our treasure, and we together make one big magic bunny, if that's helpful for you. It doesn't matter whether we intend it or not. You know, sometimes in the church, oppression, it's not this kind of oppression. It's the oppression of whining and complaining from people that don't want to help. And I'm going to tell you, for the people who are, who are engaged, and we have a lot of people in our church who do things and help and minister and work together, but I'm going to tell you, speaking on their behalf, if you think your spiritual gift is a spiritual gift to point out all the problems with what everybody else is doing and you're not willing to help, you're oppressing them. They're bringing what they have. They're willing to serve when no one else is willing to serve. They're perfumers being asked to build a wall. They're doing it. And they're being criticized by the people sitting back in their lawn chairs going, not how I would have done it. You know, I would have done it differently. Or, I think they painted that wall the wrong color. No. It's different when we're all laboring together, we're all working together and we help one another, and we correct one another, and we teach one another, and we learn from one another. That's different. But it's when the person who's on the sidelines, who spends all their time criticizing, and never willing to step up, it's, it just feels like oppression. And I'm going to tell you, I'm so happy at this church where there's over the time that I've been here, there's been less and less and less of that. I would love to say it's all eliminated, but I know it's not because sometimes I'm the whiner, I'm the complainer, but there's less and less and less of that. There's more and more people saying, how can I help? What can I do? If something isn't as good as they think it should be, they, they don't just criticize. They step up. I love that. But I'm going to tell you, that's not how things always were here when I came. And it's not how they have been at most of the churches I've been at. Well, he then says in verse 6, I was very angry. He says, I was very angry. For some reason, whatever, Nehemiah didn't know all this was going on. You know, what he's seen is, look, these people have responded. Look, they're building the walls. But he didn't know that this was going on. He hears about it, and he's very angry. He's very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, 
We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. Their response is why I give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. Their response when it says they're silent, could not find a word to say, they didn't like attack Nehemiah, they didn't get, you know, they didn't, you know, get, get abusive back towards him. And later on we're going to hear that they actually, they actually do exactly what Nehemiah says. This is why I give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe they just didn't really understand. That they were just doing what they did. And here's what they were doing. They were thinking they were helping, but they were helping to control rather than helping to free. See, oppression occurs when we help other people to control them rather than helping them to free them. We see this happening on, on big scale. We hear about these you know, terrorist groups. And what terrorist groups will do is they'll go into areas because they have money, they'll build schools, they'll build hospitals, they'll do things. But they're not doing it to free the people. They're doing it to control them. Your mind might be spinning right now, thinking about things even in our own society. When you think about, you know, during elections, we hear people, you know, presidential candidates. What are they doing? Are they actually trying to help you? Or are they trying to control you? We even do it on the interpersonal level. We help people because someday we're going to want them to help us. We're not helping them because they have a need and the need is met and the issue is done. We help because someday I'm going to need help. And now... People owe me. If people owe you, you're trying to control them. You're not trying to set them free. Notice there's nothing wrong with lending. That the Bible doesn't ever say it's wrong to lend. It doesn't say you just always have to just give everything away. There's nothing wrong with lending. What he points out is, is the exacting of interest. And oftentimes, even when the Bible talks about interest, it usually talks about like an exorbitant interest. It has nothing to do with the lesson, but it'll just shock some of you who live in the modern world. When, I, when my wife and I bought our first house, our mortgage rate was 10.5%. Can you imagine trying to buy a house today with 10.5%? Um, it's crazy. But... But this was like, this is talking about charging interest to control somebody, control their property, control their family. Again, wasn't the point. 
They weren't just helping to help a needy brother. And in fact, they were helping, the, again, the brothers and the sisters, the families of the faithful who were rebuilding the wall. They were doing this, you know, because, you know what, I can take advantage of this now, and when that wall's built, I'll take advantage of that too. We have to be careful in our own lives. Why do we help? We cannot justify enslaving, oppressing, or trying to control people in the name of helping. There always has to be a way out. It can't just be debt upon debt upon debt upon debt. We have to provide a way out. It's not you getting what you deserve. In the business world, if you agree to a, something and somebody agrees to pay it, you can say, that's what I deserve. People sometimes talk about you know, these professional athletes who make, you know, $100 million. Do they deserve it? Somebody's willing to pay it. They, they deserve it, at least in, in a business sense. And the thing we have to think of, too, is that it's, this isn't really an exchange of need for need. What they're doing is they're loaning them money or loaning them possessions that they don't really need. It's out of their abundance. It's not like, you know, these people were taking food out of their families' mouths and giving it to these people in need. They're loaning from their abundance, they're doing it to control people, and they're charging interest on top of it. oppression. It's control. It's creating this very unstable society because you're going to have increasingly resources being held by the few and there's going to be this huge gap between the haves and the have-nots. Well, in verse 9, Nehemiah really drives the point home. He says, So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? He not only told them what you were doing, what they were doing, and he, was, he wasn't only telling them, like, this is always wrong, guys. This is always wrong. You need to, you need to understand that we can't have a society, a nation, where everybody is just trying to control the other people and the most powerful win. It's never going to be good. It's never going to be healthy. It's already bad that you are enslaving your own brothers and sisters and their children. That's already bad enough. So I've pointed that out to you. But on top of that, look around you. There's people everywhere that hate us. And they would like nothing better than for us to be weak so that they can come and they can destroy us. 
Do you understand the situation has changed? This was bad when we didn't have enemies all around us. It's worse because we've got enemies all around us. Oppression by God's people, whether it's big or whether it's small, it's disobedience. And it's a poor witness. He says, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? He's talking about we, we, we need to obey what God has said to us. If you remember when we talk about the Ten Commandments, we talk about God's law, what is all of that? That's God saying, you want to have a good society? You want to have a healthy society? You want to have one that reflects me? that honors me, live this way. Do that. And then the other nations are going to see. And they're going to be amazed because they're going to see this, this, little, this little nation in one of the most difficult areas in the world to protect. And yet, simultaneously, one of the most strategic places to be. And they're going to see me right in the middle of it, preserving you as a nation. You ever feel isolated sometimes as a Christian? Maybe you're the only Christian at your job or the only Christian, you know, in your apartment building or, you know, in your family and you feel isolated as a Christian. Or sometimes maybe we feel that way as a church, like, you know, it's just us trying to do all this stuff. Think of Israel. Think about where they are. How they're vulnerable on all sides. Not just from just little other city-states. They're vulnerable to entire empires. And they're right there in the middle of everything. If anybody could have felt like, oh, it seems like we're in this all on our own would have been them. Doesn't matter. Remember, the whole overall message of this is we're faithful in all situations. If God puts you in a difficult situation, if he puts you in the best situation, we're faithful. If you have more than enough resources, if you don't know where your resources are coming from, you're faithful. Always faithful. Do what God is saying, because he's saying it for two reasons. One, it's for your benefit. It is the best way you can live. But secondly, and probably more importantly, it's a witness to the world of what God can do when he gets a hold of us. They didn't understand. They didn't understand that it wasn't about just building a wall. And maybe they had good reason. Maybe they had seen like other people before Nehemiah tried to build the wall and they always failed. And even though they think like, you know, Nehemiah is making a good run here. He's probably going to get this thing done. They still think it's just a wall. You know, that's what we often do sometimes with our own things that we do in the church. It's, it's just an event. It's just a program. It's just a ministry. It's all those things. The wall is a wall. 
But the wall is being used by God to bring this nation together. What God does through the things that we do is not just what we're trying to accomplish with that ministry or that program. He's doing something to us. And part of the reason we don't benefit and grow from these kind of things is because we don't want him to do anything to us. We're willing to serve. We're willing to play music. We're willing to you know, work in the media. We're willing to teach a class. We're willing to volunteer for next step. But we're not allowed, we're not willing to allow God to build us to be the nation, to be the church. Because that takes us changing. And so even among the willing, it doesn't, the thing that God wants to see take place, it's not necessarily taking place because we just want to do our job. We're not here to make friends, which is kind of goofy. But there are people, I think, that feel that way. I don't go to church to make friends. I go to sing songs and listen to a sermon or, you know, help with some project. That's why I go. No, they didn't understand this. They thought it was just a wall. They didn't understand the danger. And they really didn't understand, like, to me, it's the ultimate taunt that non-Christians can have to Christians. And it's this, you claim to be holy, but you're just like us. The Bible says, no, if we're believers in Christ, if we're the church, we are different. It doesn't mean we're better. It doesn't mean we should think we're superior, but we're different. We've been changed. We still disagree, but the way we handle disagreements aren't the same as the world. We still hurt each other's feelings. But what we do with that, how we reconcile, is different from the world. We, we want the world to see the difference Christ has made, not just in my life or your life, but in our lives together. And it's sad when the world can sometimes legitimately say to different churches or to the churches as a whole, you claim to be holy, but you're just like us. If you remember when Paul writes in uh, 1 Corinthians, he writes about a problem that's happening in the church because they're not dealing with this, this sin in the church. And he says, not even the Gentiles do that. They don't even do that. And you think you're so cool because you're, you're okay with that sin. It wasn't you claim to be holy but you're just like us. It's like you claim to be holy and we're actually holier than you. 
Well, what do we see how this chapter ends? It says, moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, and their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Pretty tall order. Remember, Nehemiah is doing something very risky here. He's confronting the most powerful people in that society. He's not saying, oh man, how can I try to make peace? And, you know, no, he's confronting them. They say this, verse 12, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Again, this is why I think, you know, I give them the benefit of the doubt that they truly were just kind of ignorant of everything that was going on. And Nehemiah has, has you know, taken away their ignorance. And they do the right thing. And he says, And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. You see, if we want to relieve oppression, if we want to try to you know, get oppression out, it begins when, when the powerful selflessly sacrifice to help the oppressed. So Nehemiah does. Nehemiah doesn't say, you guys do this. No, even though he had done nothing wrong, it wasn't his fault. He sees a problem and he says, I will fix it no matter the price. He leads the way. That's why Nehemiah is just held up as this incredible leader. He's not just talk. He's not saying, you guys should do this. He steps out and he, and he does it. He shows us this, this, I, this, this, I think, good principles for leadership. He sees what the problem is. He confronts the problem. And then he helps. He doesn't just say, fix it, sort it out, stop it. Pretty amazing. And he's not doing this so that he can show everybody how awesome he is. He's doing this because leaders lead. And they lead in every way. That's what he does. He does even more in verse 14. Because now he's not just going to be talking about this specific incident. He's going to be talking about his entire time as governor. And he says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. 
Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people. He goes even farther. He doesn't tax. He could have taxed, but he doesn't tax. There is the king's tax, which is being paid to Persia, but he doesn't tax. In fact, he pays everything out of his own pocket. He even takes care of his own table, where he says, there's 150 there from his own pocket. And so what is he, what is he doing? He's, he's showing He's showing the way that that we need to treat one another. He's not taking what he deserves. He's not taking what is his right. He's not demanding that he be treated and honored in 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 a specific way. No. He's thinking about the people. And he knows the situation they're in. And he knows where they're trying to get. And he does whatever it takes. He's willing to give, you know, of his, of, he's already given so much by just leaving and coming, you know, leaving Persia and coming to Jerusalem, but he's going to do more. And he embodies this spirit that, that not just leaders should have, that all of us should have. And it's an amazing thing when God brings more and more people who are, who are part of his work, not for their own personal satisfaction or their own personal advantage or their own you know, personal advancement, but he brings together more and more people who say, God, it's about your mission and, and bringing whatever we have together to accomplish your mission. You see, when people, you know, if you look at the title, The Importance of Helping the Oppressed, if you heard me talk about oppression and social injustice, maybe you thought this was going to be like a sermon where I'm going to give you all my political views on what's going on in America today. No. If you want those, go on a long run with Eric and I on Wednesday, and we'll, we'll chat about it. No. Because... How can we even start thinking about what needs to be done in this world when we're not even thinking about injustice that might be happening right here in this church? And maybe it's not something that's acted out, and maybe it's just something that, that is just there in the potential. Because what, what the antidote for this the antidote for oppression being occur, able to occur at any time, at any place, the antidote is Nehemiah. It's Nehemiah's attitude. It's Nehemiah's spirit. It's Nehemiah's sacrifice. We get that right? Not only can we make sure this kind of stuff doesn't happen here, then together we can look and see 
what can we do in this society? How should we respond? And so our prayer is to know that, that this is something that's close to the heart of God. But for it, for it to change, we've got to make sure our hearts, our hearts are connected to his heart. 